Hi, I'm Edward Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Do you ever have a situation where somebody you know, a friend, family member, a coworker, makes some comment uh, about Christianity, about the Catholic Church, about morality, and as soon as they say the statement, you're thinking to yourself, I don't think I fully agree with you there. (laughs) What do you do in those moments? Well, uh, there was a time I was giving a talk at a parish in the Chicago area. And after my talk, many people are coming up, asking questions, thanking me, wanting me to sign a book. And one woman came up and said, oh, thank you, Dr. Shree. I really liked what you said about Jesus. And I said, oh, grateful. I'm glad glad to know that you enjoyed the presentation. She said, yeah, I liked what you said about Jesus. I'm, I'm just not sure we really need a church. And that grabbed my attention. And so in the midst of many people wanting to talk to me and ask a question, I just paused with her. And I just said, oh, tell me more. Tell me more what you mean by that. You're not sure we need a church. What do you mean by that? She says, well, we should just have a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, I I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And that's what's most important. We don't really need a church. That's just an institution with a bunch of hierarchy, you know, all these rituals and sacraments and there's Mary and the saints and all these things just kind of complicate things. They just get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. We should just focus on Jesus. How would you respond if somebody said that? Shouldn't we just focus on Jesus? Do all these other things in the Catholic Church get in the way of a personal relationship with Christ? Well, I paused with her and just said, oh, it sounds like you love Jesus Christ, don't you? And she says, oh, I love him. I want to love him with all my heart. And I said, that's awesome. And and so what's important to Jesus would be important to you, right? She says, oh, yeah, yeah, I want to follow Jesus and wherever he leads me. I said, oh, that's great. Well, what was most important to Jesus in his teaching? What did he talk about the most What is he teaching when he's going from village to village? What did he talk about the most? And she said, oh, uh, salvation, you know, his death on the cross and uh, his his gift of of eternal life. And I said, well, you know, he he does talk about that, but he, he doesn't talk about that a lot, actually. In fact, his death is something he veils for a while and gradually unveils to his disciples on the way to Jerusalem toward the end of his public ministry. He doesn't actually talk about his death and resurrection much during his public ministry. What did he talk about the most? And she's thinking about it. Uh, Forgiveness, love. And I said, oh, he certainly talks about those things. But what's the one word he uses over and over again? It's it's the word he uses the most in terms of his teaching when he's going around proclaiming the gospel. It's the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom. And so I said to her, I said, "You, you do you love the king? And she says, oh, yes, I love the king. I said, do you love his kingdom? See, you see, you can't love the king and not love his kingdom. You can't love Christ and not love his church. And, and what I want to talk about in this week's podcast is the essential connection between Jesus and his church. These things are often separated in the modern mind. We just think, okay, there's Jesus over here and there's all this church stuff over here. No, no, they, they're really intertwined. It's, it's kind of messy. Uh, it's very human, and, and but God is working. His invisible Holy Spirit, his presence is working through the visible messiness of our Catholic faith. From the very beginning with those apostles who were far from perfect, these apostles who made many mistakes, Jesus chose them in spite of their imperfection. He chose them and worked through their imperfection. And he remains present to us and he does his powerful work of sanctification through these men. So I want to talk about this close connection between Jesus and the church. 
And that's what we'll look at in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sree, and I want to give a shout out to uh, those who are listening from Cape Girardeau in the Springfield Diocese in Springfield, Missouri. I uh, was able to go and present at their Catholic conference for the clergy and the Catholic leaders in the diocese and able to present also for the college students at Southeastern Missouri State University. So thanks for having me here. And uh, shout out to the students at Hillsdale College I was visiting recently. But I want to I'm going to share with you about a wonderful opportunity coming up here. How many of you are familiar with the SEEK conference, the Focus SEEK conference? So every year they draw together 10, 15, 17,000 people from all over the country. People come from overseas, and it's such an encouraging event to see so many young people, these college students, fall on their knees in Eucharistic adoration, go to confession, go to the adoration chapel, and you see all these conversions taking place. It, It gives such hope for the future of the church. If you need a shot in the arm, I've had so many bishops, so many priests tell me how much encouragement, how much hope this gives us for the future of the church when you see the future of the church, uh, the young people that are there. But what I want to share with you today is how the Sikh conference, you may not know this, while it is focused on the college students, it's not just for college students. We get uh, thousands, we had like 6,000 adults that came to the conference the last time we did this uh, before COVID and all. And uh, it, it was amazing where they come and they go to all the talks in the evening, the big keynotes with people like Father Mike Schmitz and Sister Miriam and, and many others that are going to be presenting there on the keynotes. And they can go to mass with all the college students. But then during the daytime, when the college students get their special talks about college life and dating or whatever, there's a whole track called the Making Missionary Disciples track at SEEK. Uh, And this is for ordinary lay people, adults who really want to see their faith being passed on to others. They want to see their parish transform, their parish on fire with the Catholic faith. They want to see their diocese on fire for evangelization. They want to pass on the faith to their children and grandchildren. They just want to learn, how do I do this? So whether you're just an ordinary mom or dad and grandmother or grandfather wanting to pass on the faith down to the next generation, or whether you're a DRE at a parish or a youth minister, a Catholic school teacher, uh, someone working in a diocese, uh, this conference gathers together some of the leading catechetical and evangelization experts to to talk about missionary discipleship, but not just talk about it, because there's a lot of talk about evangelization and discipleship in the church today, but what does it really look like in parish life? And so we've assembled a wonderful team of, of experts in missionary discipleship that offer hands-on practical training in how do we evangelize, how do we share the faith, whether, again, it's just in my own home with family members in the workplace, but especially in our parishes. And so there's little tracks if you're an RCAA or sacramental prep ministry, you're leading a small group, you lead a Bible study, a men's group, a women's group. So special opportunities to grow in enrichment there. Uh, check it out. You can go online to look at the SEEK conference and learn about the Making Missionary Discipleship track. That's going to be this January 2nd through 6th in St. Louis this year. So uh, anyone's welcome to join us for that event. I'll be presenting at it, and I'll look forward to meeting some of you there, I hope. But in this episode, we're going to talk about this connection between Christ and the church. You know, I think many of us think that the main reason Jesus came was, was to die for our sins, and of course, that is the main reason. But we can forget that the main reason doesn't mean it was the only reason. He did come to die for our sins, but if that's all he did, we wouldn't all be saved. You see, he had to rise from death and give us his Holy Spirit. 
And he does that through the church. He passes on his very divine life to us, his spirit dwelling in our hearts through his church. And so we see that Jesus did more than just die for our sins. Of course, that's the climax. But if all Jesus wanted to do was die for our sins, he could have done that very quickly, very efficiently when he was a little baby, right? When he was born, right? Herod and the massacre of the Holy Innocents, he's going after Jesus. And if all Jesus came to do was only die, then he could have just taken care of business right there (laughs) at the very beginning as a little baby. Well, maybe some people say, well, he had to be an adult. You know, he had to be conscious and as an adult, willingly give up his life. Okay, well, he had many chances as an adult to do this long before Good Friday. I mean, think about his very first time he preaches in his hometown in Nazareth. They, they hate his preaching and they want to kill him. They bring him to the precipice. They want to stone him. And he walks through their midst. He escapes death. Huh. Why is that? Jesus came to do more than just die because he had a chance to die right there at the very beginning of his public ministry. He could have saved a lot of time, gotten it done right away, but he chose not to die. He had some business to do, more than just die. Well, maybe he had to get a little bit of the ministry started. Okay, well, did you know that many times during his public ministry he had the chance to die? Many times people are going to try to kill him. They pick up stones and throw at him, and he, and he, gets, he avoids death. He tells the apostles to, you know, keep it quiet. Don't let everyone know I'm the Messiah, you know, because I don't, he didn't want the misunderstandings to get out there and the Romans to, to crush him and right away because he had work to do. What was he doing? Jesus came to do more than just die for our sins. He came to build the kingdom. He came to build the church. You see, the church isn't just an accessory. You know, it's, it's not like just like an option on the card. You want the power windows or not? Do you want, do you need this, you know, leather seats or not? No, no, no. It's an essential part of the motor. <laughs> and in fact, all that he does for us on the cross is going to be passed on to us through the church. If we want to receive what Jesus did in its fullest form, all the graces he won for us, we're going to receive those most fully in the church he founded. And so Jesus establishes his church. But in the Bible, we see Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. It's interesting, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4, verse 25, it tells us, right at the beginning of his public ministry, chooses the disciples and he begins going around Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. He's proclaiming the kingdom of heaven and people from all over, from Syria, from down south, from all around Galilee, down in Judea, all over are coming, large crowds coming out because they hear him talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to make sure we understand, what does that mean biblically? I think modern-day Americans, we hear kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. We may think of clouds and angels and, you know, with harps up in heaven, and that's that's the kingdom of heaven. And, and I want to be clear, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, it is it is heavenly, but God is trying to come down on earth and transform this world. He wants to bring heaven down on earth. He does that in the Eucharist and the liturgy and the sacraments and in and, and our own sanctification. He's changing us with his Holy Spirit, his very presence. So the kingdom of God isn't just up there in the clouds, up there in this heavenly reality. It, it, it comes down here and you see this clearly in scripture. And this is what an ordinary Jew in the first century would understand. I want to share with you a very important biblical passage that brings this point out. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 18. It says that the kingdom of God was entrusted into the hands of men. So this heavenly kingdom, God's kingdom, 
comes down on earth and God puts this kingdom in the hands of men. Well, which men? Who were the who were the guardians, the, the those that were entrusted with the kingdom? You know who it was? It's, it was a man named David. David lived about a thousand years before Christ. So 1000 BC, he was crowned king of all the 12 tribes of Israel. You can read about this in the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised that he was going to have an everlasting dynasty, that a kingdom he would have that would reign forever. And David and his son Solomon and then their six sons in succession were the great kings of Israel. So a Jew in the first century, when they hear about kingdom of God, they're thinking about not the clouds in heaven. They're thinking about something very specific. They're thinking about David and his sons and, and the great kingdom of David. And there are any, many prophecies that this kingdom would one day be restored. It would become even more glorious than it was in David's time. And all the Jews in the first century who are suffering under Roman oppression, suffering because they haven't had a son of David ruling over them for centuries, because there's been one nation after another oppressing them. They were in exile in Babylon for a while. They came back to Israel and they, they were in their land again, but they didn't have a king ruling over themselves. They had these other nations ruling over them. The biggest and most powerful nation ruling over them was the Romans. And so Jews are longing, longing for the prophecies to be fulfilled, longing for the king to come back, longing for the kingdom of God that was entrusted into the hands of men, David's men, his sons, his dynasty. So when Jesus comes around in the first century and he's announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand, no wonder everyone's just coming out of the woodworks. We want to meet this guy. He's the one. He's the great king we've been all waiting for. The kingdom of God is coming to us. The kingdom of David is being restored. Now, why am I talking about this? What, what's the connection here? I want us to see that this kingdom of David that Jesus is bringing to fulfillment when he announces the kingdom of God, this was a, a kingdom that had visible structures, offices of authority, lines of succession. It had liturgy at the center of it. It had its priesthood. The, the, the kings of old, the kings in the scriptures, had many close associates that were essential parts of the kingdom. So the king was the ruler, but he had his mother, the queen mother. I've talked about that in other shows. His mother reigned as the queen. Kings had many wives, but they only had one mom. So you couldn't give the queenship to a couple hundred different women in your harem. <laughs> you couldn't have a hundred queens. Every king only had one mother. So the queenship was given to her. That was common in, ancient, in the ancient world, especially there in the kingdom of Judah. So you have the queen mother playing an important role. Another important role was the role of the prime minister, the, the head of the household, that the king was in charge of the kingdom, but he gave authority to his prime minister. You read about this in Isaiah chapter 22, that the prime minister was in charge of the day-to-day -day affairs of the kingdom. The prime minister didn't have authority on his own, but he represented the king. He managed the king's affairs. And the symbol of the prime minister's authority, you know what it was? It was the keys of the kingdom. Now, when you know this Old Testament background, all of a sudden the Catholic faith starts to come alive. I mean, doesn't it make more sense? Like when you hear about, oh, in the Old Testament, there was the great king, David, and his sons. They were the kings. And who helped reign as the queen? It was the mother. Well, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus is announcing a kingdom. He's the king. He's the new son of David. So who's going to be the queen? His mom. So you ever wonder why we call Mary Queen? 
why we crown her, why we see her depicted in royal splendor. Why do we sing Hail Holy Queen, Salve Regina? Because it's biblical. It's what the scriptures tell us to do. Jesus is the king. Mary's the mother. You follow the biblical pattern. Mary must be queen mother. Of course she's our queen. Same thing when you know the Old Testament background that the kings had their stewards of their kingdom. And the symbol of the prime minister was the keys of the kingdom. So when you read that Jesus is the great king, and you read that he's announcing a kingdom, you would just expect he's probably going to have his prime minister, his right-hand man, the one that he's going to vest with authority to be in charge of the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. And so it's no surprise that when you read in Matthew 16, Jesus turns to Peter and gives him what? The keys of the kingdom? Where did that come from? It comes from Isaiah 22. In other words, he's getting, Peter's being given the role of the prime minister, the steward of the kingdom. He has the keys. The, king, the idea of Peter and the papacy, the line of successors after Peter, they're all standing as the king's representative, Jesus's representative here on earth. That's why we've often called the popes, the successors of Peter, we've often called them the vicar of Christ. They're not Jesus. They're not the king, but they represent the king. That's biblical. This is the biblical pattern. So my friends, you, you see, if you understand the biblical background to the kingdom, it makes so much sense out of our Catholic faith. We start to make sense out of Mary and, and her queenship. We make sense out of Peter and the papacy, the keys of the kingdom. I want to close with one more thing, though. I want to talk about the importance of the priesthood. That also comes into play. You see, there's a great biblical account in the New Testament. Do you remember that story when Judas had hung himself? He dies. He's one of the 12 apostles. And Judas has to be replaced. And so all the apostles, they gather together and they're trying to figure out what to do. Peter summons them and says, hey, we, we got to find a successor for Judas. So we used to be 12. Now we're only 11. We, gotta someone, we need someone to fill his office. It was understood that Jesus established 12 apostles but those roles weren't one-time appointments. They were offices with lines of succession. And so you have to, Judas has died. We need someone to take his place, to fill that office, to step into that office. And so they bring two men come forward that had been disciples with Jesus from the very beginning. And one's named Joseph, the other one's named Matthias. And how are they going to decide which one? They pray. They say, Lord, show us who's the one that should take this office, fill in the role for, for Judas. Who should this be, Lord? This is such an important moment. You know how they decide? The Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, they cast lots. They cast lots. Now, what does that mean to cast lots? We don't know exactly about casting lots. It's some kind of game of chance maybe like rolling dice and, or straws, some kind of game of chance. That's how the Romans understood it. In fact, you may recall on Good Friday, what did the Roman soldiers do? They took Jesus's garment and then they cast lots for it. It's just a game of chance. Who's going to get it? Like rock, paper, scissors, <laughs> you know? But that's how the Romans, the Gentiles approach casting lots. What I want to close with is this beautiful biblical symbolism of casting lots in the Jewish tradition. Because if you know the Old Testament understanding of the kingdom of God, David's kingdom, you would know that casting lots is not just a game of chance. It is the way that God's will is made manifest for priests. That the priests were associated with casting lots. Let me share with you the biblical background to this. So we read about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. 
David is now that he's the king of all of Israel. He's there in Jerusalem. They're building, they're, they're going to build a temple. They're bringing the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. And this is going to be the center of worship. And so now David reorganizes the priesthood around this new liturgy that's going to be centered on this central sanctuary in Jerusalem. And they're going to be focused on perpetual adoration, praising God with hymns and songs. And this is when the, the book of Psalms is written to continually praise God. And, and he reorganizes the priesthood. He puts them in the 24 different groups, 24 different divisions. And each division comes up for a period of time to run their tour of duty in the, and to serve in the sanctuary. And how do you decide when you have so many priests, how do you decide which priest gets to do which job in the liturgy? You know what they do? It tells us in First Chronicles 24, they cast lots. They're casting lots to decide the roles of the priests. And, and so casting lots is associated with the priesthood. That's why in the opening story of Luke's gospel, Zechariah, the, the priest, the one who's going to become the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah goes to the temple for his turn and duty. It's time for his division to go and they cast lots and he gets the honorable role to offer the incense and go into the holy place that day. Casting lots is associated with the priesthood. God is choosing who is the priest that's going to do which duty. God's will is made manifest through the casting of lots. Why is this all important? Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, when you see Peter and the apostles trying to decide who should be the one to succeed the role of Judas, his, fill his office, what do they do? They cast lots. That's what you do for priests. What does that tell us? The apostles weren't just leaders. They weren't just committee heads. They weren't just the head of a task force. <laughs> they weren't just leaders for the church. No, no, they were priests. And priests were a crucial part of David's kingdom. Just like the queen mother, just like the prime minister and the priest, they all played a key role in the kingdom of God that was entrusted into the hands of men. That's the great kingdom of God Jesus is proclaiming when he's announcing a kingdom. He's announcing the fulfillment of all the prophecies that the great kingdom is here coming to unite all humanity. And just as in the Old Testament, the king had a queen mother. So in the New Testament, the new king, Jesus Christ, has his mother Mary as our queen. And just as the kings of old, the kings of the Davidic dynasty had a prime minister had someone who was in charge of the day-to-day -day affairs to be the steward of the kingdom, so does Jesus. He has Peter and his successors who get the keys of the kingdom, just like the prime ministers of old. And finally, just as the priests played a crucial role of this kingdom, that this kingdom of David wasn't just a political kingdom, a military kingdom, it was a kingdom of priests meant for worshiping God. So liturgy, worship, and priesthood is at the very center of the new kingdom of God that Jesus establishes, the casting of lots, the apostles and their successors, all the way down to the bishops today through 2,000 years, stand in that line of succession with Matthias and Peter and James and Andrew, those 12 apostles of old. And all of the priests participate in this through ordination as well. So if you want to know where do I find Jesus I find Jesus by turning to his church. I love Jesus by loving his kingdom. You can't love the king and ignore the kingdom. You can't love Christ and reject his church. We need to find Jesus in the church and find him through the great kingdom of God and the close associates of the king, the queen mother, 
the prime minister, which is the Pope, the queen mother, which is Mary, and the priests, which are our bishops, and then by extension, all the priests that share in the, in the great sacrament of ordination. So many more things I wish we could get into here, but I hope this has been an interesting reflection on the importance of our King and his kingdom, Christ and his church. Thanks for listening and God bless.